for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For more, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you're wrong. You should always do your own homework and let us know the word. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. And uh, again, not interrupted. So that must mean that Stuart's <laughs> not here, Paul. This is really unsettling. <laughs> <laughs> Paul, let's let's just get right to it. Why don't you tell the audience what it is we do on this show? Sure, I'd be delighted to. We are an internal medicine podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. Uh, we also, at the outset of the show, like to get to know our guests a little bit, talk about hobbies and things that sort of relax us and what we do outside of medicine. Listen, you're an adult. I mean, you make your own decisions. You you decide what you want to do. I can't tell you what to do. Um, I I for one enjoy life's rich pageant. You you may just be slightly more dead inside. Want to skip ahead, and you can do that too. So just refer to the show notes to find out when we get to the good stuff. <laughs> I love how these are getting more and more elaborate <laughs> as we go on. Well, it's less we... passive aggressive and just more straight up aggressive. <laughs> like, listen, dum dums, listen to the beginning. <laughs> and I, I wanted to introduce our our returning co-host, Dr. Justin Burke. Hey, Justin, thank you for coming back on the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Uh, last time you were on, I think it was for things we do for no reason. Uh, we were we talked a little bit about your your nonprofit website. I feel like obligated to mention it's not for profit. This is something you're doing out of the goodness of your own heart to try to build up the knowledge base in in internal medicine. So can you tell how how's the website going? If you if you wanted to give it a plug before we move on to the the topic here. Yeah, thank you so much, Matt. Yeah, so we have a website called clinicwiki.org. Uh, as featured in the Things We Do For No Reason uh, uh, podcast. Um, it is a online ambulatory wiki where we're collecting uh, repositories of notes of different PowerPoint presentations, podcasts, videos, and pearls. Uh, you can check us out at clinicwiki.org. Check out like the hypertension, chronic kidney disease. We've got some great pages, and we're, we're slowly developing, getting bigger. Um, and if you have any interest in getting involved, you can uh, Find me on Twitter is probably the easiest, or uh, just uh, tweet Paul, and uh, he'll 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 figure it out. Good and luck finding me. Just to be, <laughs> Justin, I just wanted to clarify you you have faculty advisors, right? And then there's the residents tend to be the the main authors, but then there's a faculty advisor like a Joel Top or a Bob Centaur. I think they've both done something along with it. That's right. Yeah, we have a lot of cash like faculty that have been uh, supporting, but there's faculty advisors for Top. Um, for each article, there's a pharyngitis that Robert Centaur has supported, Joel Toff with uh, chronic kidney disease, um, but resident uh, written for resident education, med student education, and anyone that's interested can check it out. Okay, so now now on to the main topic. Our guest tonight is Dr. Michael Sag, MD. He is the director of the University of Alabama at Birmingham Center for AIDS Research and an internationally known expert on the virus that causes AIDS. Over the past three decades, Dr. Sag's achievements include making seminal discoveries in the genetic evolution of HIV in vivo, directing the first inpatient studies of seven of the 25 antiretroviral drugs, and developing an innovative, comprehensive HIV outpatient clinic blending patient care and high-quality clinical outcomes research. In 2014, Dr. Sag released his first book, Positive, which chronicles his journey in the in helping turn the most deadly virus in human history into a manageable chronic disease, which is now in its second printing. So on this episode with Dr. Sag, we we get into all the things you would need to know as a primary care doctor from, uh, from screening all the way through diagnosis and counseling the patient when they're initially diagnosed with HIV. And then we get into a little bit of how you can link them to care and how their primary care may or may not differ from your average patient. Uh, spoiler alert, it doesn't differ. So without further delay, here is our talk with Dr. Michael Sag. Michael, the first question that I wanted to ask you tonight is, can you give the audience a one-liner to describe yourself? Yeah, I'm a 60-ish uh, year old guy, amateur movie maker, wannabe playwright, wannabe comedian, married with three growed children and two grandchildren. Wannabe, what, what have you written? I, I know you've written a book. 
what movies or plays have you written so far? I'm an amateur movie maker. I started that when I was in junior high school and started doing music videos around 1967. And when MTV came out, I, I was apoplectic because I said <laughs> I missed it. I was doing this for, for 12 or 13 years before. And anyway, what I'd do is I'd take a Super 8 movie camera and I'd go around and film stuff. Of course, there was no soundtrack. And then to make it more interesting for people to watch, I would play music to the, to the movie. And sometimes I would uh, actually think about the music before I shot the movie. Uh, for example, uh, when I was in medical school, at the end of the senior year, they have skit night or in the middle of the senior year. And somehow or another, they put me in charge. I don't think they could find anybody else to do it. And this is 1980. And I was bored to tears in all the other years because they always ended with a sappy slideshow, like with music the way we were. <laughs> and I was gagging in the back. So I decided that we should do something else. So my year, I took the, um, the song A Day in the Life by the Beatles, which I thought was four years of medical school and four minutes and 50 seconds. I read the news today and, and then woke up, fell out of bed, was third year. And I filmed it with my classmates, and uh, that's on Vimeo, so I can give you the link for that yeah, if you want absolutely. to see it. There you go. Okay. All right. Uh, this We always give, uh, everybody's going to ask you a question, so we'll mix it around. Paul, we'll go by uh, seniority. Why don't you go next? Oh, thanks. Well, no, not now with the, the, the filmmaker thing, I'm all perked up. So what's, <laughs> okay, so rather than a book recommendation, give me a, a movie recommendation if you don't mind. What's the last great movie you saw? MASH. Nothing since MASH? Movie. <laughs> no, it's my favorite movie. Oh. It's my favorite movie. It, it, it hit me at a time when I was still in high school, and I thought Hawkeye Pierce was the uh, role model for practicing good medicine. Yes, absolutely. That's a great recommendation. Um, as the resident resident right now, uh, what would you say the best advice you have ever received uh, as a learner has been in your career? To be honest with myself. Uh, the number one rule is you can, um, what's the right word, BS other people all you want to, but as long as you don't lie to yourself, do I really know what I'm doing here? And even if other people might expect me to know something, if I really, really don't, it's okay. Just at least admit it to myself and seek help. The only time you're ever really going to hurt a patient in a big way is if you're pretending to know something that you don't, and then you act. So seek help. Honesty with yourself. I, I find those are always the scariest learners to be around when you realize yeah. it's it's somebody that doesn't know what they don't know, and that you got to watch out for those people. It's kind of the John Lovett, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's the ticket. <laughs> well, we want to. We do want to make sure we have plenty of time uh, to to go through the main topic today, which is HIV. And our audience, ourselves, and our audience are general generalists. Uh, many of us practicing primary care. So we would like to try to get as many pearls out of you as we can before we let you go. Justin, do you want to read a case to start us off? Absolutely, Matt. So our first case is Mr. S. He's a 32 year old male. He's presenting to your clinic for a regular checkup. Uh, he really hasn't seen a doctor since his pediatrician. He has no chief complaints. He's just here for an annual exam. And the question is, should this patient be screened for HIV or who is indicated for general routine HIV screening? My short answer is that anyone who's sexually active or has ever thought about being sexually active should be tested for HIV. Uh, so yes, absolutely, because we can try to glean from a medical history who might be at higher risk than someone else, but it's a straightforward test. The false positives are, are vanishingly small, and the knowledge of getting people diagnosed and into care early is so strong that everybody should be tested, in my opinion, on their initial evaluation for general medicine or any type of primary care. I think it would be useful, uh, certainly for me, and I, I imagine for many people in the audience, if we get into some of the like the details of the specific tests that are available, like what people might see pop up when they go to order the HIV screening test. 
because yeah, that's a good point. So let's divide them up into sort of two categories the fir- for screening. The first is a rapid test. And I would argue that there's really, for most practices, that's not necessary. You, don't, you could set it up in your, in your office if you wanted to, but, but I think those are more reserved for <clears throat> public health type screening uh, areas where follow-up may be challenged. But you're talking about a practice where you have a a captive patient population for whom you're providing longitudinal care, I would just order the standard, it's called fourth generation HIV antibody antigen test. And that is comprehensive. It will tell you not only if the patient has uh, infection from a long established uh, time ago, but also it tests for the antigen, uh, which would be present during the acute phase of an uh, uh, acute phase of infection. So what you what would you miss with that? Basically someone who's been infected within the last 10 to 12 days. But that's it. So I would screen with the standard test and you'd order it as an HIV one slash two antibody antigen test. Which, can you just, uh, I know Paul wants to ask a question about the screening, another question about screening, but I wanted to follow up with the antigen. Which antigen specifically is it testing for? And can you tell us like when that turns positive versus when the the antibody tests turn positive? Yeah, so the it's testing for one of the proteins of the virus called P24, P standing for protein, 24 for kilodaltons. It's where it travels on a Western blot. Um, but the, the concept is that it will test for that antigen and it will, um, uh, that would turn positive roughly about 15 to 20 days after initial infection, um, perhaps as soon as 12 days. Now the HIV RNA would turn positive, start to turn positive at day 10. Uh, so you're not going to, you're not going to miss much. Antibody turns positive about day 30 after infection. I, I'm just wondering, sort of in the primary care setting in terms of screening. So if, if you say I have a patient really without any complaints, but did think about sex, and I, I screened A for HIV, I guess sort of what frequency after that should I be repeating screening or when should I think about screening again? Well, that's a judgment. Uh, so if oh, no. somebody who's in a, yeah, if somebody's in a stable relationship and they're not, at least there's no indication that they're having um, uh, frequent uh, sexual exposures outside of their steady relationship, um, then I don't think you really need to retest very often or perhaps at all. Um, but sometimes it's hard to know. So then you might test every five to 10 years at a minimum just to kind of keep it going. But I really think that where you want to check frequently is in somebody who is telling you that they have uh, f- frequent sexual partners more than one, uh, usually one or two episodes or exposures a month to somebody different. And then you check about every three to four months. And that person also, by the way, ought to be started on pre-exposure prophylaxis. We can get into that later. But that's if somebody has high-risk sexual exposures, then that's something else you can do. But one other hint that would tell you that somebody's being exposed is, do they have any sexually transmitted infections. Mm-hmm. If you treat, anytime you treat somebody for a new STI, you should check their HIV status each time. Gotcha. I was going to ask kind of similar to Paul's question on some of these patients that are needing to be screened more frequently or someone that I want to screen and has no other complaint. As far as the oral test, is there something that is subpar about them? Uh, I feel like there's patients I have that I hate to send them to phlebotomy to get a blood draw just for an HIV test if there's no other blood draw. Or they might not go, and those oral tests seem like they can be a quick oral swab. Are they uh, uh, equally effective as the fourth generation serum tests? They're close, and they're pretty good. So they're maybe 98%, uh, whereas the other test is 99.5 or 99.7% accurate. So they're pretty good. And they're, uh, I just would say that if there's somebody at higher risk, and you do a rapid test and it's negative, I would go ahead and follow up in some unit of time with a uh, standard test. Mm -hmm. I mean, they got their regular phlebotomy for other things. 
I wanted to recap something um, for the audience. So we were talking about the test. You said we order the HIV, the fourth generation test, which is going to be the P24 antigen. That's positive at about 14 days. <clears throat> and then the HIV-1, HIV-2 antibodies are positive at about, you said, 30 days. I wanted to ask you, is there what is the importance of differentiating between HIV-1 and HIV-2? In the United States, there's not much diff- not much reason to. HIV-2 is a virus that uh, mostly is in West Africa. So if you have somebody who's traveled there or somebody who's who originates from there, that's when you want to check for HIV-2. But I think for most practices in the United States, it would be solely HIV-1. Guys, any other questions about the initial testing, or do you want to move on to kind of part two of our case? I'm excited to move on. I think... Uh... So, Mr. S, we, we do a fourth-generation uh, HIV antibody, just this kind of routine screening because he has thought about having sex. And uh, sure enough, he uh, comes back positive for uh, HIV. So it's an immaculate infection. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Maybe he more than thought about it. <laughs> uh, but no, you identified risk factors. You feel like, you know, this is not a false positive test. This is a pretty strong test. He comes into clinic uh, to go over this test results uh, how do you counsel him on the diagnosis? How do you tell him that he has HIV? Well, let's back up one half a step and say that I think a good practice is that whenever you're going to order the test, you let the patient know that the test has been ordered. And that eases your way into the conversation should it come back positive, as opposed to just doing it and then saying, oh, by the way, when you were here last week, I checked for HIV. And guess what? You're infected. That doesn't go over so well. No. So I think um, you let them know. Sometimes they kind of want to opt out. Um, I try to find out the reasons why, and uh, it it rarely happens that they do. But sometimes it's as simple as they're worried about a pre-existing condition on their record, um, that type of thing. But most people agree. So you've you've done some pre-test counseling. They come back. You sit down with them. It should always be done in person, always be done in person. It's like you wouldn't want to give a diagnosis of cancer over the phone. You don't give a diagnosis of HIV over the phone because you need to read their reaction. That's number one. Number two, you also should understand that as soon as you tell them the test is positive, no matter what you say from that point forward, they're in orbit and they're probably not going to retain much of what you say after that point. You're going to go over those things, but you want to make sure you have them come back and review everything you said. And I encourage people to bring a someone else, uh, a friend, a relative, their regular partner would be ideal, but that's sometimes hard for the second visit. But you want to have them come back with somebody else because that way they can listen with you. And it also assures that the patient has some degree of social support. There's nothing worse than someone getting this diagnosis and having to go home alone or be home in an environment where they can't tell anybody about it. It is, it is horribly anxiety provoking and um, isolating and stigmatizing. So I would say, uh, bring them back. What do I talk about? Well, I first off say, uh, I know no one wants to have this infection, but as I go through this story, uh, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot that we can do about it these days. And I focus on the positives, um, and I say, look, uh, number one, you've got this virus, but we can treat it. And once we treat it, we can round up, in essence, all the virus in your body and put it over in jail over here off to the side. And as long as you take your medicine every day, that virus is there, but it's not going to hurt you and you'll live a normal lifespan. And oh, by the way, you won't transmit the virus to anyone else. I'll say that again. Once they're on treatment and their virus is undetectable, they will not transmit the virus to anyone else through sexual activity and probably not even through sharing needles, although that's not 100% uh, proven yet, but for sure not through sexual activity. And that's huge. Um, I then go on to say that uh, this is a a diagnosis that um, has a lot of stigma with it, but it's things that through talking about it, finding that one or two, uh, finding those one or two individuals that you feel comfortable uh, 
talking to about this, it'll help you get through it. I also offer counseling, um, and I, re- I tell them, and this is my personal feeling, but I say to them, let's say this person's 32, if I were a 32-year-old person and I had to have either HIV or diabetes, I'd take HIV every day. Why? Because it's much easier to control and there's fewer downstream consequences of uncontrolled infection, or in this case, diabetes, uncontrolled disease. And I guess I'm asking this question a little out of order, so I, I do apologize, but when when do you consider absolute confirmation of a diagnosis of HIV? So if you have, say, the, the fourth-generation test comes back positive and differentiates in the positive for HIV-1, do you do any confirmatory testing, or is it at that point that you say you have the diagnosis of HIV and so I guess, so do you need yeah. confirmatory testing and how do you sort of phrase what to do next, I guess? Re- really glad you asked that uh, because I, I skipped that part, um, meaning that the test is, like I said, 99.8% accurate. I tell them everything I just told you, but it's another reason for them to come back in a couple weeks or a couple days to get started on treatment. Um, but, but I tell them that I'm going to have some follow-up uh, studies and that key follow-up lab test is an HIV RNA or a viral load test. And almost universally, if their antibodies positive, their HIV RNA uh, will be uh, detectable in their bloodstream. There are rare or uncommon situations where somebody's truly infected, but you can't detect HIV RNA in their bloodstream. They're the so-called elite controllers. But I think for purposes of this discussion, um, most everyone will have detectable virus, and then you've confirmed the infection. Thank you, Paul, for re- remembering to ask that question. I, <laughs> and I think that was a very important piece of information. We're always here to back clean up. <laughs> what, so what other sort of things, um, I, I guess there's a couple ways we could go here. I mean, we could, we, so we've diagnosed the patient. We, we, we told them they have probably have HIV based on their test. We're pretty certain we got the viral load. Um, they're going to come back and see us to start treatment in a couple days. What else will we be doing at that second visit? Or do you just focus on the meds or do you start to get into comorbidities and and, and, uh, and other additional testing? Well, on that same first visit where I'm, conf- I'm going to send off the confirmatory RNA, I would check a CD4 count. I would do viral hepatitis screening. The I would do a, a sort of broad screening for sexually transmitted infections, especially an RPR and... Uh, uh, and depending on their exposures, but I think most everybody, I try to check uh, urine for uh, residual GC or chlamydia. Um, if they've had uh, exposure through rectal sex, I would check a rectal swab for NATS or uh, for a, a nucleic acid test for chlamydia and gonorrhea. Um, and I'd also probably check an HLA B5701. You're thinking, what in the world is that? Well, that's obviously a genetic marker, and uh, it's a HLA, human leukocyte antigen marker. Um, and for B5701 positive individuals, which is about 5% of Caucasians and about 1% of blacks, um, then you do not want to give them a Bacavir because they will get have a risk of getting a hypersensitivity reaction that if they stop their medicine or rechallenge with it, it can be fatal. So you want to know that before you start prescribing in general, especially you're going to prescribe a Bacavir. But I think a bigger, broader picture for most uh, people in primary care is a branch point. After you've done the test, it comes back, you're going to send out the screening information. Then you have to decide, am I going to be the one who treats this patient, which is totally fine. I'd encourage it for those who are you know into this and want to do it. Or am I going to refer them to an HIV clinic? And that's your call. Um, but I, I would say that's the key branch point for decision making. After that first visit, when you're ordering the initial labs, is that a time when you discuss initial treatment? Do you initiate treatment? Do you wait for the labs? Um, how quickly do you want to start? And then what is kind of the broad, uh, uh, you know, 30,000 feet view of uh, treatment initiation? From a medical perspective, oftentimes there's not a strong reason to start at that first visit. Um, There are psychological reasons, however, that some studies have shown that rapid initiation of therapy really on the day of diagnosis can lead to 
better longer-term outcomes in terms of virologic suppression at one year. A lot of those studies have happened in Africa and other places where there's a long distance between the clinic and where the person lives. I'm talking 50, 100 miles, maybe longer. Uh, and so starting them on that day is very important. Uh, in more U.S. populations, I don't think it's as critical. Um, I could tell you what we do, but to be honest, unless that's because we do HIV care every day, we have a an initial intake uh, visit that's done by one of our case managers, and all the baseline labs are drawn at that visit, so that they come back and see one of us, a provider, um, in about a week, ideally, or less, and when those tests have come back, and then we initiate therapy on that second visit. Uh, but I think the concept is to get people, once they're diagnosed, on treatment within two weeks. I think that's a good rule of thumb. So what would the what would the backbone of kind of your your contemporary treatment look like and are there certain patient factors that make you choose one way or another when you're starting the type of patients that I tend to see are sicker internal medicine patients but you can you can just kind of give us a broad a broad view of how you might do that Things have gotten a lot simpler these days I, I literally just was part of um a new update for the guidelines for HIV uh, treatment and care, and it was published in JAMA on July 24th of this year. And uh, when we were going over the recent data, we boiled it down to really only integrase inhibitor regimens as the preferred regimens, as the ones we would go to first. Why? Because they're potent, but maybe more importantly, because they have very uh, they have a very low side effect profile, very well tolerated. Nobody wants to take medicine that makes them feel bad or even a little bit bad. And we're talking about lifelong therapy. So think about it, how you might prescribe hypertensive meds. You're going to try to find that regimen that works, but also one, of course, that doesn't have any perceived side effects. With integrase inhibitor regimens, we now have that in HIV. And so it's going to be regimens with either dolutegravir-based or this new drug, Bictegravir-based. Uh, we could also use Raltegravir or Elvitegravir. These are all four of the integrase inhibitors that are on the market. But uh, the first two, Dolutegravir and Bictegravir, are coming in fixed-dose combination regimens. It's one pill once a day. And the only thing about Dolutegravir is that it's linked in its fixed-dose regimen with Abacavir, that medicine that I mentioned you want to have a B5701 result back before you prescribe it. So if you're going to be doing same-day immediate therapy, you might lean more towards a big Tegravir. If you're going to be waiting a week or two while the results come back, then you could use either the Dolutegravir or the big Tegravir fixed-dose combination regimen. And sort of broadly speaking, I, I know this is a, a hugely complicated topic, but are there any sort of broad principles that primary care doctors, like medications we should sort of just generally avoid um, with the newer agents or, or yeah, I, I think that's my question. Are there any medications or classes we should avoid when someone's on, on ART? Yeah. Oh, you mean as far as the ART itself or the... No, that I might prescribe. Like, are there certain statins uh, or blood pressure medications yeah. or things yeah, like well, that, that's, that I should so, be worried about? So, yeah, there's a, there's a hidden message to the regimen that I told you about either Bic or Dolutegravir. And the reason is that those drugs are glucuronidated. So they're not managed too much by the CYP3A4 or other isoenzymes of the liver. So that minimizes the likelihood of a drug-drug of a interaction. So for the most part, with BIC regimens or dolutegravir regimens, you've got a pretty good green light as far as drug-drug interactions. And you don't have to think about it all that much. The same is true for raltegravir. The only problem with raltegravir is that it has, to, it has two pills um, uh, for its regimen, and then you have to add a third pill to complete the regimen. So it's three pills once a day as opposed to one pill once a day with the other two. But it's a fine medicine, and it probably has the least drug-drug interactions among all of them. So you can feel pretty comfortable with statins. You can feel comfortable with um, uh, antacids. You can feel comfortable, except for calcium, you got to it's, it's subtle, but if you're going to use a, an antacid, you want to make sure that they're taking 
the medicines with food. Otherwise, it could be taken without food. Those are kind of nuances. But those, the general rule of thumb is I don't worry too much about drug-drug interactions with those medicines. Michael, I wanted to I wanted to ask you. So it sounds like uh, we're we're really now to a once a day regimen. They might be taking multiple pills, but it's it seems like it's just once a day for most of these regimens that we'd be going to, which I imagine is is purposeful for compliance. Um, what are some other things that, as a primary care doctor, let's say they're on the regimen, whether we're giving it or somebody's getting it at an HIV clinic? What other things, as a primary care doctor, can we add to their care? Uh, comorbidities we have to manage or other health problems we have to look out for? Here's the good news. They're just like everybody else at that point. Mm -hmm. Really nothing special, nothing different. Um, If they're having exposures and getting STIs, well, you treat them, of course, and you screen for those um, STIs more often. But as far as everything else that we do for primary care of a non-HIV patient, we do the same thing for HIV patients. Um, it's, it's exactly the same. If somebody's traveling overseas and you might have to use a live vaccine like yellow fever, uh, I would just consult an expert there. But for routine vaccinations, you do the same sort of schedule as you do anyone else. For annual influenza, um, all those types of things, I would be, uh, uh, I'd feel very comfortable. One thing that as one population that if you're prescribing the medicines that you gotta be a little bit careful of is is women who could uh, become pregnant because uh, some of these medicines, and in particular dolutegravir, perhaps bigtegravir, can have some um, potential uh, fetal toxicities that we don't know about yet. So we're suggesting that people avoid those and use raltegravir, but these are kind of nuances. I think a good rule of thumb is you treat your HIV patients more or less the same as you would any of your other patients, full stop. Mm -hmm. I just want to make sure I'm understanding. So no indication for the high dose influenza vaccine, no need to do the the 13 valent pneumococcal vaccine if there's no other compelling indication for that first. Just just so I'm sure that I understand because I feel like I trip up on this a lot. Well, we usually do the uh, both the 23 and the 13 valent pneumococcal vaccine. So I I thought everyone did that. So maybe I'm wrong. We, We do that. We do both. And I did. So I guess part of part of what was in my question there, I when I was reading about this, it was just sort of pointing out that cardiovascular risk, even even if patients with HIV are well controlled, viral load undetectable, that they are at increased uh, risk for cardiovascular disease and maybe certain cancers. Is that is there truth to that? Yes, there is. Um, and, and but it's it's a relative risk, right? So we're going to be screening everybody for cardiovascular disease. I would just say you put another tick in the box of relative increased risk as you would a diabetic or or someone um, who, smoking is it swamps everything, right? So you want to get everybody off of cigarettes if you can. Uh, but I'd say it's equivalent to diabetes in terms of how it might increase someone's risk. There are also other chronic inflammatory diseases, even lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, where cardiovascular disease will be a little bit uh, increased in terms of relative risk because of the chronic inflammation. And I think that's what's going on with HIV, that even when the virus is suppressed, there's still still some low-grade chronic inflammation buzzing around in the background. Got it. Thank you. That's, that's a great explanation. One other thing to keep in mind is that, as you mentioned, um, that what about screening for cancer? Again, it's mostly what we do for everybody else, colorectal screening at age 50, um, uh, depending on whether they're smokers or not, what you do with chest x-rays or even later in life CT scans, potentially. Um, but one thing, if somebody is uh, having exposure through receptive anal intercourse, you're going to want to do pap smears, rectal pap smears, ideally. Um, at the, roughly the same interval that we used to do cervical pap smears. I know that world is changing now. And the rules that are applied to non-HIV women for uh, cervical cancer screening apply also to the HIV population, not really different. How often should we be following CD4 counts and viral loads? Love that question. Okay, this is brand new in the guidelines. So viral load every six months. Um, CD4 count, uh, 
roughly at the same time you check a viral load as they come on therapy, which is at like six weeks and three months and six months. But once the viral load is suppressed below limits of detection and the CD4 count has risen above 250, and you have a sense that this trajectory of persistent undetectable virus is going to continue, like you have enough track record with the patient where you know they're taking their medicines or at least reasonably sure, and you have three or four undetectable viral loads in a row, stop checking CD4 counts. Stop. Once it's hit 250 and you've got an undetectable virus that's sustained, you don't need that test anymore. It's wasteful. It just wastes money because you aren't going to do a darn thing different uh, based on whether the CD4 count is 480 or 790. Doesn't change a thing. Does the difference in CD4 count demonstrate any difference in like how late stage the HIV is? Would that give you any information if a CD4 of 350 versus 900? No, hmm. not at that level. Where it becomes helpful is when it's below 200 sure. and gives you the relative risk of something um, that might be happening in the opportunistic infection world, which rarely happens, at least the OIs, when it's above 200. However, one, one misnomer that's sort of out in the community of providers is that the CD4 count is a measure of immune system function. It is not. What affects the function of the immune system is the virus, high-level viremia circulating in the blood, binding to receptors on immune system cells, is the culprit, is the evil player in causing the immune dysfunction. The CD4 count is a relative marker of how long the virus has been there and how damaged the immune system is in general. But it's not about the function of the immune system. And the way you know that is because if I have a patient and they, two patients, one came, both came in with CD4 counts of five and a viral load of 500,000, I treat them both. On one of them, their, viral, their CD4 count as a viral load suppressed goes up to say 200 over the course of two years, and the other guy stays at about 80 CD4 counts. There's really not any difference once the virus is suppressed in the number of new OIs or the exposure or any kind of problem for the most part that those people would experience. The one with 200 has a, has a little bit lower risk of, of developing pneumocystis, but so you keep the prophylaxis on board. But the point is that the function of the immune system is really driven by the exposure to the virus itself. And once you take that virus away, the immune system start function starts to return rapidly. And that's why you get that um, iris reaction, the um, immune reconstitution inflammatory syndrome that you see four to six weeks after you treat somebody with advanced disease, right? And that iris reaction is precisely because you pulled the immune, immune suppressive virus out of the system, and now the immune system is waking up, and it's looking around going, whoa, I didn't know that was here, and it starts to attack, and then you get new symptoms. I, I wanted to ask you along these same lines, when I, I see in the hospital right now, I see a lot of patients that are on and off their therapy, and we don't know what, how long it's been since they've been off therapy. W when do you know, like, how when someone stops therapy, how, how soon do their counts start to go up, viral load, um, and their CD4 drop? And, and when someone goes back on therapy, how quickly do you see the CD4 rise and viral load fall? Well, generally speaking, missing a dose or two of medicine once somebody's suppressed won't have any effect. But if somebody stops completely, which happens a lot, life is complicated for a lot of people and they just hit a, hit a wall and they can't manage things, so they stop taking their medicines. Usually it's about two to four weeks after they stop that the virus rebounds. Sometimes it's a little longer, but that's about the, the, the place. So once the virus starts to replicate again, the CD4 count can drop pretty quickly. But it's really important to note that a lot of that drop isn't destruction of CD4 cells. Rather, it's inflammation inside the lymphatic tissue where the virus is replicating and their adhesion molecules are elaborated in response to the replication. And those adhesion molecules trap CD4 cells in the lymphoid tissue and pull them out of the circulation. Much like you think about inflammation with neutrophils and you give steroids and they get that 
release back into the circulation. Here you see CD4 cells being trapped. And now to answer the second part of your question, once you start treating with the antiretroviral therapy again, within days to a week or two, the viral replication is shut down completely. The elaboration of the adhesion molecules and the inflammation starts to dissipate and the cells are re-released back into the circulation and the CD4 count can rise pretty quickly. Does that all make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I, I have a question about that too, because I feel like I've had a couple of people try to teach pearls that they can also look at the CD4 percentage or look at the lymphocyte percentage on a CBC and try to estimate the CD4. Is there any uh, utility in the, either the CD4 percentage or trying to estimate based on a CBC while the CD4 is pending or those things in practice? Yeah, this is kind of a cool thing to remember that the CD4 count, which is what we've been taught is the sort of gold standard of measurement for HIV as far as those cells go, is actually a calculation that's based on the total white count times the percent lymphocytes times the percent CD4s, right? So if you're going to look at CD4 anything, CD4 percent would be the best thing to look at, but we're not used to that. So I say to heck with it, I'm just going to look at the count, but understand that those other things can fluctuate like total white count and certainly percent lymphocytes. And you can get some, let's think of it like a teeter totter, you know, when you, when those things go down or up, then, then it really changes what the, what the mathematics or what the, what the outcome is for the CD4 count. And so when I'm in doubt or when there's a lot of fluctuation, I always go back to the CD4 percent to see what really is going on. But I think for most folks, uh, the CD4 count is fine. It's just really important to understand where that number comes from in order to interpret it right properly. With the last with the last few minutes here, I wanted to just open it up. Uh, Paul, do you have any questions that we, or anything that you think we're missing? No, no, not really. I mean, we, I don't think we touched, and, and uh, hopefully I wasn't distracted when this happened, on the harm reduction counseling sort of portion that happens, I think, at the initial visit. I, so I'm not sure if there's sort of uh, any canned or prepared speech that you do for that, but that might be the only thing I might want to address. I'd say, and also as part of that, maybe counseling patients who are not taking their medicines. I think Elena's mm -hmm. typing that in might also be a part of that and comes up a lot. Okay. With regard to harm reduction, um, what I really try to communicate is the best way for people to not only preserve their own health and also prevent them from transmitting the virus to others is to take their antiretroviral therapy. That's the cornerstone of all good things with HIV as far as outcomes. Now there are other behaviors like a lot of our patients who aren't HIV infected that can be harmful to their health like substance use in a big way, alcoholism. Um, those types of things, it's really not a lot different. Uh, in fact, I would say it's not any different. Uh, than what I would say to any patient who's struggling with those conditions. Um, it just happens to be that a lot of our HIV patients are uh, may perhaps disproportionately more engaged with substance use or alcohol. Uh, and so we encountered a lot more in practice. The thing that I like to stress with patients about taking their medicine every day um, is I really focus on the good outcomes. I really reinforce when they come in um, that, first off, I'm really glad they kept their appointment today. Thank you for coming in. Why do I do that? Several reasons. One, believe it or not, we've discovered that a single missed visit, just you know, not showing up, not calling ahead of time to say they're going to miss their visit, but just a no-show. A single no-show is associated with about a 0.23 relative risk index of, of death. You believe that? It's true. That's amazing. Yeah. So a missed visit is a huge indicator there's a problem here. Houston, we have a problem. And so I do everything possible to assure that I minimize missed visits, phone calls ahead of time. If they miss a visit, we call them and say, hey, we noticed you weren't here. So trying to get them back into care. And several missed visits proportionately increases their relative risk of death over units of time. So that's number one. 
The second thing, complimenting them or rewarding or saying nice things about them showing up, shows that I care about them. And I think what what a lot of patients are looking for is a sense of belonging, a sense of of a home, that when they come to get their medical care, the people who they see there give a damn. They really care about their outcomes. So that's the second thing. The third thing, at least that I do and I can do because I've been at this genuinely for a long time, is if I send somebody's missing drug, missing their their medications, and I first explore the why without asking why, I would say things like, instead of why are you missing, I'll say, tell me what's going on. Uh, What's happening in your life? You know, I've noticed that you haven't picked up your medicines, as we can check, for the last three months. Something must have happened. Tell me about it. Or I'll say, is the medicine bothering you in any way? I mean, is there any side effect? Because sometimes that's going on, and a lot of times patients don't want to tell me that, uh, unless I specifically probe. And so having the longitudinal relationship with folks really helps. Um, the, the, the final card that I'll play, if push comes to shove is um, I'll, I'll do one a variant of one or two storylines. One is I'll point out the fact that my hair is gray and I've been doing this for a long time. <laughs> and that I remember back in the day when we had nothing, nothing to offer patients. And I think back to all those people who died. And I asked the patient, do you, what do you think they would have given to have this medicine that you have? back in 1987. Do you think that would have meant something to them? What do you think they would tell you if they saw you had this medicine and you didn't really feel like taking it? What do you think they would say? And sometimes that works. And other times I'll say, if they have kids, I'll say, you know, so-and-so your child, um, what if you took your child to the doctor and the doctor said it's really, really important for them to live, for them to take this medicine. What would you tell your child? And then they said, well, you know, I'd tell them to take it. I said, okay, what do you think your child would tell you about having you around for them to watch them graduate high school or college? Do you think that would mean something to them? And that's when I'm pulling out the heavy guns, but it's all true. And sometimes patients need to be hitting hit between the eyes with these realities. And it sometimes works. Doesn't always work. Um, Michael, I wanted to ask you about uh, when, when patients, let's say we diagnose somebody and initially their, their HIV is out of control and they they actually come and we initially diagnose them with AIDS. So we're, they're going to be on prophylaxis. How, how long do we need to keep them on it once the viral load's undetectable and once the CD4 counts have come up? So the rules about prophylaxis are really pretty straightforward. Um, you don't need really any prophylaxis if the CD4 counts above 200. But when it's below 200, you for sure want to be giving pneumocystis uh, gerovecchiae, or, or used to be called cornea or PCP, pneumonia prophylaxis. And that's usually one double strength Bactrim once a day. And you continue that until one of two things happens. Either their CD4 count goes above 200 while their viral load is suppressed, or if their viral load is suppressed for more than a year and their CD4 count is between 100 and 200 for that time, then you can stop PCP prophylaxis. Other prophylaxis we don't really give anymore. We don't give Mycobacterium avium prophylaxis or MAC prophylaxis. Used to when the CD4 count was below 50, but we find that the medicines are so darn good now and the immune system comes back so quickly with ARV therapy and a retroviral therapy that we don't give uh, MAC prophylaxis anymore. And that's also new in those recent JAMA guidelines from the IAS USA I just re- referenced. And um, other prophylaxis, not so much. Uh, if you're in an area where cryptococcus is endemic and the CD4 counts low, uh, yeah. If, if you're in an area or there's evidence of latent tuberculosis, sure, you give uh, TB prophylaxis just like you would uh, when you treat latent TB for anyone. So those are the things that I think we do, but it's, it's really gotten a lot simpler in the last decade. This, this great advice you were just giving our patient a few moments ago, 
you you ha- you run the nineteen seventeen clinic, so maybe you could briefly tell us what that's about, and then how can we link patients to care? I personally am not comfortable treating HIV. I'm not trained, so how can we find? Is there a great resource that our that you could point our audience to so they can link their patients to care once they've made the diagnosis? Sure. Um, I started the 1917 clinic in January 1988 in Birmingham, Alabama, a place where you might not think that you could just open up uh, doors and hang a shingle and for HIV patients, but I'm very proud of our institution for allowing me the opportunity to do that. And I, I feel very uh, happy saying that uh, the institution and our clinic has made a big difference for a lot of people over 30 years. It's been very rewarding. It's hard to imagine a more impactful thing for any of us to have experienced in our careers, and I'm very fortunate to have been a part of that. I'm no longer director of the clinic, Dr. Jim Raper is, but we now see 3,600 active patients and have an entire operation that that does this in a very uh, efficient way. In fact, it's so good that I always say, I don't necessarily want to have HIV, but I'd love to be taken care of in the 1917 clinic. It is a pure, true medical home. It's got all the things you'd want in a true medical home. And it's not just me, segueing to your other question. It's not just us. It's it's basically almost every Ryan White-funded clinic that I know of in the country operates in a very similar way. So as far as referral, I'd look around and see if there are Ryan White uh, clinics in your area. Most folks are practicing in a pretty stable system. They're not doing locum tenens everywhere. So you will learn pretty quickly where your HIV clinic is, your go-to clinic, just like you would for any other referral source for ENT or neurosurgery or whatever. You're going to find your HIV clinic nearby. And the federal government funds a lot of these through the Ryan White Care Program. An alternative is an ID provider who's doing HIV care out of their practice. That that happens some, and especially in major metropolitan areas, but it's becoming less and less common as HIV has become more standardized in terms of um, fewer opportunistic infections happening, less need for acute infectious disease practice. And a lot of ID docs um, went into ID to take care of uh, more of the acute infection problems, and they're, they're, some of them are not as inclined to do primary care, which HIV care has become uh, for the most part. But in the case of an internist um, like yourselves, uh, if you refer a patient to me, I would establish a partnership with you, and I would see them for the HIV care, and I'd look to you to manage the primary care, and it really works out great for everybody. Uh, so find that local person or group. A source for you is the HIV Medical Association, the HIVMA. It's part of the IDSA, and they can find providers for you pretty readily. The last question is, can you give some take-home points for the audience? Sure. HIV is here, but it's radically different than it was 30 years ago. It's a controllable, manageable, chronic infectious disease that when managed properly can allow someone to live a near-normal lifespan and not infect others through sexual contact. And 15 years ago, I couldn't have said that, but now I can. We are, it's an imperative on us as providers of all types to be testing everyone that is in our practice for HIV at least once, and more often, as we discussed, depending on uh, continuous exposure, potentially. And once you make the diagnosis, it's very important to either get them started on treatment yourself, but in most cases from primary care, get them referred to a local um, Ryan White clinic or provider who can provide care for them. Uh, It's just been staggering the progress that's been made in HIV care over the last 25, 30 years. It's just amazing. In our lifetime, in my lifetime, in my professional lifetime, I've seen this go from an almost certain death sentence to a chronic manageable disease. And that is just, it was unimaginable at the time, just totally 
unimaginable. And it's just really cool. And one other thing I'll mention, this is not a take-home point directly, but the revolution that happened in hepatitis C over the last six or seven years where we're curing people with eight to 12 weeks of therapy for hep C, that all came from the HIV research movement from the 90s. It just transferred directly into hepatitis C, and now we're reaping the benefits of it there. I, I look at the HIV research programs a lot like the space race of uh, the 1960s when we were trying to get to the moon from uh, by 1968, and we created everything from Tang to Wang. Well, that's what that's what happened. That's what happened with HIV. We're reaping lots of benefits. So I'm real proud of what we've done, and I, uh, I find it very exciting every day to participate in the care of so many people. And uh, we are not getting paid to mention this, and I did not tell Michael that I was I was going to mention this, but he did he did write a book called Positive, which is available on Amazon, and he talks in the book uh, talks. I have not read it yet. I've I've read the cover jacket. I I want to read this book, <laughs> but he talks about this this process which he was part of. So it's called Positive: One Doctor's Personal Encounters with Death, Life, and the U.S. Health. U.S. healthcare system. And uh, so I think that would be, if people are interested in hearing more about this, it wasn't the main focus of our interview, but I think this would be a great place to go read more about it. Yeah. And then I I don't want to plug the book per se, but I think it might be interesting for those who read it just like 30 seconds. Um, I've always been bothered by the inequity in our healthcare system. Ever since I was a medical student onward, I'm probably more agitated over it today than I've ever been. But I was ranting to a friend in 2010 as the Affordable Care Act was going through, and I said, we missed our opportunity. We missed our opportunity to have the debate we needed about what should the U.S. healthcare system look like. And as I was ranting, he said, you should write a book. And I said, nobody wants to read a rant. And he said, well, couch it in a story. So my great-grandfather had written his memoirs. I was named after him. He died in 1940. I was born in 55. And because he wrote those memoirs, I felt connected to him. So I knew I was going to do a memoir. I just didn't know when. I certainly didn't intend to publish it. But this book was the memoir that I was going to write anyway with stories of how HIV went from a death sentence to a chronic manageable condition, the research, the behind the scenes, and uh, how stories about our healthcare system and what I think we can do together to make it better. So every chapter has those three threads, me, unfortunately, the U.S. healthcare system, and how AIDS uh, research happened. So that, as you read the book, you'll see all three threads in, in each chapter. So, to, I guess to leave the audience, I, I've said I, this is my last question already, but I, I one more question. Do you think, it, it, will, you said eight, hepatitis C has been cured. Will we see a cure or a vaccine for HIV? I, I imagine you'd, you'd be more in the know than most other people in the world about this. This is my last answer. So uh, I, I think we will one day. Uh, it might not be in my lifetime. Uh, And I think it's an interesting race between whether the vaccine will be first or the cure will be first, but both are daunting uh, for different reasons. The cure because there's a chronic latent pool of cells that lives on and they're they're quiescent and you got to find them and it's a needle in the haystack and scoping them out and killing them is going to be is a real tall challenge and that's what between us and cure. And on vaccine front, this virus is just mutates all the time. And how do you find a, a, a vaccine that will protect against every minor variant of the virus as it responds in the immune system um, and mutates and tries to escape? And so it's going to be a challenge. But if, if you had asked me whether we'd have people under control back in 1987, by 2018, I'd say no way. But I've seen enough good things happen to where I, I, I'm a believer now. Thank you so much, Michael. I think that's a perfect spot to end. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can get show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast, or you can sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food. We also, we love to hear your feedback, so send some to thecurbsiders at gmail.com or just reach out on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto, 
I'm Dr. Justin Lee Burke. Strong. And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. And goodbye. And thank you to Elena Gibson, who will be graduating medical school in 2019, God willing, uh, for for writing and producing this episode and uh, helping us get such a great guest. And to all of our curbsiders uh, running social media, Hannah R. Abrams is on Twitter, Beth Garbatelli is on Instagram, and Chris the Chew Man Chew is on Facebook. Thank you and good night. <laughs>